You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Andre Martins, who's an associate professor at IST and VP of AI research at Unbabel in Lisbon, Portugal. His research focuses on natural language processing and machine learning. Andre's PhD thesis is titled The Geometry of Constrained Structure Prediction, Applications to Inference and Learning of Natural Language Syntax, which he completed in 2012 at Carnegie Mellon University and IST in Lisbon. We talk about his work in the thesis on structured prediction in NLP, including methods for incorporating constraints into graphical models, the 80-cubed inference algorithm, and work on structured sparsity. Throughout the interview, we go back and forth between the past and the present, and discuss connections between his thesis work and later work on sparsity, sparse communication, and more. And be sure to stay around for when we talk about which loss functions should be used for training GPT-4. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Andre Martins with The Geometry of Constrained Structured Prediction on the Thesis Review. In your thesis, you develop methods which not only have good empirical performance on different applications, but they're always kind of motivated from nice mathematical uh, models, they're principled, and they even carry some theoretical guarantees like convergence. So just a high level thing to start, like what role do you see theory or these more principled models as playing in NLP? And has that kind of changed over time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think theory is very important. And, uh, you know, in, and in, my, in my opinion, I think, you know, maybe theory should play a little bit of a bigger role in NLP than it is playing right now. I think, you know, theoretical rigor is as important as experimental rigor, if not more important. Um, so, of course, this doesn't mean that we should only work on with methods whose theoretical properties you understand well, because, you know, uh, this will be a huge limitation. Like, you know, many of the methods that we use, like neural networks, we don't really understand theoretically why they work. Um, but but we should know uh, at least what is known and what is not known. Uh, and we should also know if you are, uh, you know, uh, backing our, our findings on theoretical claims, we should know very well what which assumptions we are making and, and try to estimate how realistic these assumptions are. Um, and you know, of course, not not everyone needs to work on the same thing. So you know, it's it's fine if people some people prefer to do more empirical exploration, while others will try to find the theoretical gaps. Um, but my 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 feeling is, which is 
maybe it changed a little bit. Maybe it's even uh, it's it's more it's accentuated things more now with the rise of deep learning. But I think that uh, the community as a whole spends you know too much time trying out quick things empirically, you know, just to meet the next conference deadline, as opposed to trying to think big on on formalizing things. Um, and yeah, so I think in my thesis, this was already something that I that I felt, and I I tried to pay attention, you know, to the uh, theoretical parts of the of the models that I was proposing and uh, and understanding them. Um, in addition to you know uh, just trying them out empirically, and I, I still think the same way. So when you were starting out, I mean, was this always a motivation for you? Did you come from a mathematical background? Um, and how did you get interested in machine learning? Yeah, this this um, so I you know the, the first time I, I had contact with machine learning was in my undergraduate thesis. Um, so I did my undergraduate studies at at IST in Institute Superior Technic in University of Lisbon, uh, and uh, and my my undergraduate thesis you know we had something called an undergraduate thesis at the time. Now it's called a master thesis. Uh, it was related to computer vision. So my first introduction, you know, my, before I, I worked in NLP, I worked in computer vision. Uh, and so the goal of that, of that work was to uh, estimate the camera orientation if you are given just a single image. And, you know, the idea was, is to exploit our prior knowledge about the architecture of the environment. So we assume that you are, for example, in a city that has a very orthogonal architecture, uh, for example, in Manhattan, in, in New York. Uh, this was actually called the Manhattan World Assumption, uh, and based on on this prior that you have about the world, uh, you know, can we can we try to estimate uh, how the camera is aligned with this environment? Um, and I really loved that 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 work. I mean, I, I learned a lot there. You know, um, it was like a, a Bayesian approach uh, to the problem, um, uh, and you know, I didn't immediately started my PhD right after the undergraduate studies, after finishing. Uh, this thesis, I worked in industry for, for a few years as a software engineer. And this is where I started to work in natural language processing. Um, and, you know, I, 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 since, since I was a kid, I always loved math and linguistics and, and language. Uh, so this was a you know, perfect combination of these two. And it's funny because, you know, the, the problems I, I was working at the time in this company in NLP were things that are extremely popular today. today. And at that time, they looked, you know, very far-fetched, like question answering. Uh, and, you know, I also work a little bit on grammar checking and so on. And, uh, you know, I, I really liked, uh, you know, that, that work. And I learned a lot, uh, you know, uh, as a programmer and software engineer. But I felt like uh, in order to do progress in those challenging tasks, uh, you know, we need, we need to learn. I needed to learn something more fundamental. So we needed to... Um, you know, to spend some time uh, seeing how we could use machine learning to tackle those problems. Uh, and this is the time where I decided that I, I, I wanted to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that time, I was very, uh, so this, this was kind of uh, close to the time where kernel methods were something very exciting in machine learning. Um, and I was super excited about those topics, you know, kernel methods, uh, information geometry, and so on. Uh, but uh, I could not figure out, you know, how, how could this ever be useful in, in natural language processing? You know, so I, I thought, okay, maybe I, I need to start a PhD, learn more about all these topics, and eventually uh, uh, there will be some ideas about how to apply these things to these problems. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did some work uh, on string kernels uh, and things like that before starting my, my PhD. 
Um, and then, and then suddenly in in uh, 2007, there was this huge opportunity that came up. Um, so there was a, a brand new initiative uh, funded by the, the Portuguese government that was doing partnerships with several universities, mm-hmm. and one of them was with uh, with CMU, with with Carnegie Mellon University. Um, uh, you know, this was called the CMU Portugal program. It still exists. Um, and, and language technology was one of the core areas of this program. And so this was the perfect setup. So, you know, I, I decided immediately to apply, uh, to this program. You know, this was super exciting because, you know, the, the LTI, the language technologies Institute at CMU was one of the top places in the world mm-hmm. to work in, in statistical NLP. Um, and, uh, everything happened very quickly. So, you know, th- because this was the first time they created this special program, you know, this didn't follow the usual academic calendars. So I applied, you know, sometime in April or May. I got accepted sometime in June or July, and then I started in August. You know, so in a few months I was going to Pittsburgh uh, to start my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so this this is how things started. So then you had kind of these interests you mentioned in math, just generally, and then uh, the industry experience actually exposed you to natural language processing. But then you also had this experience with um, computer vision and, and kernel methods. So then when you kind of set foot on campus, uh, whether it's uh, CMU or uh, IST, did you have a clear picture of exactly what you wanted to do in the PhD or when did that start to um, emerge? So like your thesis is on structured prediction. Did you generally know that you wanted to focus on on that? Yeah, this this was interesting. So you know, initially I thought I had a clear picture, but uh, you know, I realized that what I really wanted to do was something else. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I had a, a very unusual setup in my PhD with four advisors. I don't know anyone else who had four advisors in their <laughs> PhD. Uh, and so I had two advisors in Portugal, uh, Mario Figueiredo and Pedro Pedro Guiar. They were also my undergraduate advisors. Um, so the people that introduced me to machine learning, basically. And I had two advisors at CMU, uh, Noah Smith and Eric Shing. Uh, and, you know, the good thing, you know, of course, people were concerned that, oh, you know, it might be a bit chaotic to have four advisors, but it actually went very well because, you know, they all had very different uh, topics of expertise. So no one was really pushing me in a particular direction. I could really benefit uh, from from talking to, to all of them uh, to find new directions. So Mario and Pedro were more into statistics and optimization. Uh, Noah was the expert in NLP, and and Eric was a you know a machine learning superstar. So I was very fortunate to work with all of them. And so in the beginning, I my my clear idea was uh, because before the PhD with Mario and Pedro, I was already working in kernel methods. My idea was okay, I'm going to keep working on kernel methods, uh, maybe with a little bit more focus on uh, other NLP problems besides text classification. So my first project was uh, wrapping up something that I had started. Uh, before just before the PhD, that that was bringing inspiration from uh, information theory and and something uh, you know uh, coming that came from from statistical physics called uh, Sally's statistics, um, and uh, you know this was kind of a generalization uh, of Shannon's entropy, uh, you know, and it it, it it's something that uh, it was very important to model some uh, sorts of uh, uh, physical phenomena. Um, uh, but so I, I, I noted that uh, we could generalize some uh, kernel functions that were widely used at the time if you looked at uh, these sort of entropy functions. 
uh, and uh, the initial work was exactly this. So this was, you know, the first conference paper that we published at, at uh, in, in my PhD at, at ICML. Uh, it was basically developing a, a family of kernel methods. Uh, we call these non-extensive kernels. Um, and and this is kind of unifying uh, several things that uh, that existed and we apply them to text classification. Um, so it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I never worked again in, in with Salis entropies, except very recently when we started to do things with sparse max and entmax, where those uh, that experience that I had in the beginning of my PhD was really useful to connect the dots. And now we are using that in, with, with entmax, which is also based on, on these generalized entropies. Um, so I, I really enjoyed his initial work. You know, it was very, you know, mathematically driven, not uh, not focused on the actual application. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it soon became clear that uh, kernel methods had a lot of limitations for NLP, uh, you know, in particular for the NLP problems that I was interested in. Um, for example, you know, with kernel methods, we always have this quadratic dependency on the data set size. So, you know, things are challenging if you have a, a large training set. Uh, and and also most of the kernels that are used in NLP are things like uh, were things like convolutional kernels or, or rational kernels, and they are not very different from what people do when they engineer features. Uh, so it's kind of um, you know it's more like a way of turning up features that people already use in a kernel function. Um, and and also you know text classification was not was a bit of a boring problem. It was not really. Um, uh, so I, what I really liked about language was the structural side of language. Mm -hmm. And in text classification, we don't really exploit that structure. So shortly shortly after um, I finished this first project, um, I started to work in structure prediction. This was, uh, you know, Eric Shing provided me a lot of pointers. Um, and, uh, and and then I, you know, I, with, with Noah, we introduced me to the topic of dependency parsing. Uh, we uh, my my first my next project was to apply structure prediction to parsing, mm -hmm. and my big influence at this time um, was Ben Tasker's uh, work in structure prediction. You know, I, I his thesis was you know one of the first theses that I read when I started my PhD, and I you know I spent a lot of time reading uh, to to know more about structure prediction. And this thesis is, is a true masterpiece. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it introduced things like max margin Markov networks. Uh, a, a, a way of unifying uh, structure prediction, doing inference and learning as convex optimization, and so on. So I was really, you know, super fascinated with these topics, um, and uh, and you know, I, I immediately started to think about, okay, how can we use this for parsing? In particular, how can you go beyond dynamic programming and start uh, looking at higher order um, constraints mm -hmm. for for structure prediction problems? Yeah, I see. And and then so at the time, could you give a summary of how structured prediction was approached? I mean, like some people today might, for instance, like only be, be familiar with these very like end-to-end -end methods. Uh, whereas reading through the thesis, it seems like the approaches were a lot different and were maybe based on these graphical model type approaches. Could you just give like a backdrop for um, what was going on at the time? Yeah, so things were very different in that sense from what they are today. You know, the the the, par the main paradigm was basically using a NLP pipeline where we we first uh, you know tokenize your words and you you do something like part of speech tagging then you parse then you do something else on top so it was really not end to end as as uh, as it is today 
um, but like in, in the, the general way of, of looking at structure prediction is as a problem that involves making predictions that involve outputs that are uh, highly constrained or highly interdependent. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have, if you want to predict a structure like a sequence uh, or a tree or a graph, and you know, and very often in NLP, we need to deal with this sort of uh, structures. Um, then we can. It doesn't work to predict, the, you know, the label of each each piece independently. You need to pay attention to these correlations and and develop a model that exploits that. And so the way this is typically done is by first, uh, you know, decomposing your structures into parts. Mm -hmm. uh, so these parts could be, for example, uh, you know, in a sequence, uh, vertices and 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 uh, like uh, consecutive words uh, in a sequence. Uh, or if you have a graph, it could be like vertices and edges uh, in that graph. Uh, in parsing, in dependency parsing, it could be arcs. Um, and so typically you, we have uh, you know, a feature-based model that allows you to compute uh, a local score for each of these parts. But these parts overlap each other, right? Uh, and so the goal is to come up with a structure that maximizes the total score, but making sure that this, uh, you know, there is agreement in these overlaps. And so we cannot maximize things locally at each part. Uh, we need to often use some kind of combinatorial algorithm. The most popular choice in most NLP problems is some kind of dynamic programming, like the Viterbi algorithm um, or, or extensions of it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, one of the most famous uh, examples when I started to do my PhD, which was kind of the model of choice at the time, was conditional random fields. Um, you know, in particular, you, you would pick CRFs uh, if you have a taste for probabilistic models. Um, and so the process was something like you define, uh, you know, a tractable model for your structure problem, uh, you know, something that allows you to do inference with dynamic programming. Mm -hmm. um, then you, you know, engineer some local features. And this part is important. You know, it's something that now we don't think anymore about that. But at the time, feature engineering was something that, you know, will devote a lot of time doing it. And then you learn the model with your favorite optimizer, you know, typically LBFGS or stochastic gradient descent, depending on how much data you had. And so there, there's a few big limitations in that process. You know, the first limitation is that's the one that I just said, like you need to spend a lot of time doing feature engineering. Uh, and not only that, but you cannot just choose whatever features you like. You are kind of limited. Like if you want the model to be tractable, if you want to do decoding with dynamic programming, uh, you, you are limited to features that depend only locally in your output. Uh, so for example, you cannot, if you are doing part of speech tagging, you cannot uh, introduce a feature that depends on the tag of the first words and the tag on, on the last words. You know, the, the, those things are, are introduced complications in the decoding algorithm. Um, but but uh, you know, this, this is a limitation because in many practical cases, you might want uh, you know, something like a skip chain for example, if you have uh, if you are doing uh, named entity recognition, and you have the same word appearing uh, in two places in your documents, you might want to be consistent about what entity that word represents, um, or you might want to exploit correlations between dependency arcs in parsing, um, or you might want to impose you know some 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 hard constraint you know some first order first order logic constraint or you know it really depends on the problem. Um, so compared to CRFs. I was I was more excited about methods that were non-probabilistic, uh, like uh, structured SVMs. By non-probabilistic, I mean that don't output a probability distribution. Um, so so structured SVMs and max margin Markov networks, uh, you know the kind of things developed by Ben Taskar and others, 
um, they were more recent than CRFs. And the reason I like them is that they they don't require compute expectations or margin or marginalizing. Uh, you only need to maximize functions to make predictions. Uh, and you know, if you're doing dynamic programming, it doesn't matter because you you know uh, marginalizing or maximizing is just switching from some product to max product. Um, but uh, but if you are you know if if you want to incorporate features that are non-local, uh, if you want to you know start tackling these hard constraints and so on, it's a lot harder to do it uh, and and to marginalize over your structures. It's much easier. Uh, to to write your problem, you know, as as a maximization problem, which often we can represent as a linear program or an integer linear program, and then tackle that problem directly, either with a solver or with something that exploits the structure um, of of your problem. And another more philosophical reason why I liked non-probabilistic methods better more was this, um, you know, this this famous uh, sentence by Vadim Vapnik that you know if you are solving a problem you should not try to solve a more general problem as an intermediate step. Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in, for structure prediction, oftentimes what we really wanted was a model that makes a prediction. We don't ever look at the probabilities. Also because the probability values are usually terrible. You know, they are not calibrated at all. Um, and so it seemed more logical just to focus on the problem of, uh, um, you know, uh, having a way of uh, uh, computing the structure that, that maximizes the score. And not having to go through the process of defining a probability through. Yeah, that makes sense. If your goal is just to get kind of one good output, then there might not be a reason to model the entire distribution. Uh, so yeah, you had also discussed this in, in the thesis, like this idea of moving from the local features to the global features. Uh, and so this was kind of a key challenge. And then another aspect um, that you address in the thesis is the idea of incorporating constraints. So what were these um, constraints? Like, what would be an example of a, a constraint? And then what, what was the difficulty of incorporating this into these models? Yeah, so, so uh, we, we had this thing uh, that, that, that I called constrained graphical models. Um, so so the, the motivation for this is that, you know, in, in NLP, we, we often want to impose declarative constraints. For example, you know, uh, we want to say that a sentence usually have at least one verb, or a predicate don't usually take two subjects, uh, or you know, you want your even more important, and this is very relevant in parsing. You, you want your structure to be a tree. You don't want it to have loops or cycles. Um, and most literature on graphical models, uh, you know, in particular words that were more inspired by computer vision applications, they tended to uh, just reduce everything to a pairwise Markov random fields because you know you can reduce any graphical model that doesn't have doesn't have uh, art constraints mm -hmm. to a pairwise MRF and then you can just do message passing on this pairwise MRF and this simplifies a lot uh, you know the, the the mathematics and 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 the, the algorithmic parts but it doesn't really work uh, always for NLP uh, because um, like uh, uh, in NLP, constraints are really everywhere, and you know, and sometimes they are very global. So if you want to impose that uh, your structure cannot be a tree, this is not something that we can easily do by converting things to a pairwise MRF. Mm -hmm. um, we need to do something a little bit different. Uh, we cannot, like for example, use very negative log potential, a very negative score to prevent those uh, things to happen. Um, and so I, I, I thought that we need to formalize constraints explicitly. 
um, and, um, and and so it, the kind of uh, of graphical models that I that that I, I was developing in my thesis were essentially factor graphs, which are well, they are not pairwise. You know, factors can have multiple variants attached to them, uh, so we can consider dependencies on more than two variables. Um, and uh, and then there are different kinds of factors that we considered. You know, either local factors, for example, for looking at words that are next to each other. But also structured factors that include full substructures. For example, if you are combining a model that models a tree with a model that models a sequence, and you want to leverage these two models and do prediction together, uh, it might pay off just to consider each of them as a factor. And these are very structured factors. You know, they are in fact complete structures. Mm -hmm. um, and the other, the third kind of factors that was very important was hard constraint factors. So these are factors that. Uh, are linked to, to a few variables and they impose constraints on the configuration of those variables. Uh, for example, you know, they, they can imp impose some logic function of those variables. They can say that, uh, you know, if the variables are binary, they can say that, okay, at least one of these variables must be, must be one. The other ones can be zero or one, doesn't matter, but at least one has to be one. Uh, or, uh, or things like uh, budgets. For example, if you are working on tasks like summarization, and your binary variables are including a word or not in your summary or a sentence, um, then your constraints could be something like, I, I don't want more than three sentences in my summary or, or more than 100 words, whatever you want. Um, and, and this kind of thing could be modeled by logic factors, budget factors, and so on. And you know they can be very expressive. We, with simple logic factors, we can uh, start encoding arbitrary constraints in first order logic. Um, and I kind of exp explored a little bit about that in, in my thesis. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, the idea was really focusing on, you know, uh, using those, those, those tools to build uh, models that are not limited to local features, but they can have global features uh, where these constraints could be included. Um, and uh, so th this idea was very inspired also by previous work by Dan Roth's group. Uh, who did a lot of work formulating NLP problems as, as integer linear programs, and you know considered some constraints to try to uh, you know drive the decoding process. Um, but in that in that prior work, most of the work was you know more focused on the formulation, and then they used the off-the-shelf uh, ILP solver, and they they didn't really care much about the optimization parts. What I was curious about was how we could unify this approach with graphical models. Uh, so how could we take advantage? Uh, of the structure of our constraints and factors, um, and and not only uh, encode it as a as an ILP and you know use a solver for that, but also exploit the structure to have our own solver, uh, and maybe make a connection with graphical models. Uh, ultimately, I wanted to have a unified way of doing both uh, uh, map inference and marginal inference. You know, to use both CRFs and SVMs under the same underlying graph. Um, and this is what this is what I did for um, higher order dependency parsing. It was kind of the problem of choice in the thesis, because it has a very nice ingredients there. Um, you know, first we developed the ILP formulation for parsing uh, that differed from uh, other previous formulations because it had only a polynomial number of constraints. So the the, the previous formulations for parsing they uh, assumed that you need to prevent every possible cycle in your tree. Because you don't want to have a, a loop in your in your tree, um, and and for that you needed to create one explicit constraint for every possible cycle. 
Um, so this was not polynomial size the ILP. We cannot, you know, uh, encode this ILP and 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 put it in a solver. Um, and so I, I looked at the literature on combinatorial optimization and found a lot of problems that could be formulated with multi-commodity flows. And uh, and you know one of them was related to spanning trees, which was uh, something very uh, you know it's, it's essentially the underlying problem of uh, uh, non-projective dependency parsing. Um, so we build a connection between these two things, uh, and this was a uh, you know one of the first papers that that, that I had in, in in my PhD at, at ACL. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the the key trick was you know introducing these flow variables, um, use a technique called lifting, uh, and then um, and then you know make make this linear program have just a small number of constraints, and only later we made the connection to graphical model inference, message passing, dual decomposition. So there I was thinking about okay instead of just sending this to a solver, maybe we can have uh, something that is more efficient than efficient than a general purpose solver. Something that really exploits the structure, and this was the time where I started thinking about constrained graphical models and you know uh, message passing algorithms and so on. Um, but yeah, so we with this work we released a parser called Turbo Parser. Uh, so the, the the name is you know it it doesn't mean that the parser is fast. <laughs> it was not very fast. It's not the first release. Uh, the name was really inspired by something called Turbo Codes, uh, which are you know very important. Uh, uh, tools in, in communication theory that used uh, somehow uh, you know a similar inspiration you know they they uh, they are based on representing a, a graph with the possible uh, codes that you can decode and be able to do error correcting coding that way um, and and turbo parser you know was it was state of the art for dependency parsing for some time now it's very far from state of the art as you can imagine uh you know at the time it was funny because in parsing at the time every small increment of uh, a few decimal points were seen as a something amazing but when you know neural networks uh, uh appeared again uh this these gems were were much bigger yeah i did like the name it seems like good um good marketing at least i yeah i didn't know about that connection with the turbo codes um so yeah like you mentioned these different ideas of like formulating things in terms of integer linear programs. And then if someone wants to read through the thesis, um, these different mathematical ideas come up in like discrete ge geometry, things like, you know, polytopes. And it actually reminded me of a previous episode of the podcast uh, with Sebastian Nozen. And so he was looking in, into structured prediction, but in images, but coming across a lot of these similar ideas. So we were talking about um, polyhedral combinatorics in that interview. Looking back f with spending all these time, all, all this time with these different, uh, you know, geometric objects and things like that. Do you have some favorite ideas that have kind of stayed with you, even if it's just like thinking about these different polytope objects? Yeah. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, so I, I really love, you know, Sebastian Novozin work at, at the time. It was like a, maybe one of the few works in computer vision that was exploiting, you know, uh, global constraints mm -hmm. for images. And it, it was, you know, his thesis is really well written. I really, it was, I, I didn't read a lot of theses in my, during my PhD, but, you know, some of the few theses I read was, uh, you know, Ben Taskars and Sebastian Novozin. Um, so yeah, it, I, 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 the inspiration was similar. I, I was really uh, excited about you know defining structure prediction problem in a, in a way where 
you can you can have like a, a polytope you know uh, that where each vertex of this polytope represents a structure mm -hmm. and the polytope itself represents a, a, a distribution over structures so uh, you know uh, um, a point, a point that is a convex combination of different structures can be regarded as a distribution over these structures, mm -hmm. uh, and and this was this was highly influential. You know, this polytope is kind of the constraint set of the linear program that that we were solving in in these different techniques, um, and it was very insightful to look at this project to get to look at these problems geometrically. This is this is something that you know. Uh, where we revisited uh, a little bit more recently. So, you know, at, at the time of my thesis, I was not uh, doing anything with latent variables, but but these days I am. Uh, and I think that's the, the place where I got, again, more excited about structure prediction was uh, uh, thinking of those problems as something latent in a neural network um, that requires doing some sort of, uh, you know, uh, differentiation. So you need to, if you want to learn your, your neural network parameters with gradient pair propagation, you need to be able to differentiate over all these layers. And, uh, you know, instead of using, you know, simple layers with the typical activations that we all know about, uh, you know, we can, we can also consider structured layers. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have more recent work with, with uh, Vlad Nikolai, uh, with with sparse map and uh, LP sparse map that are steps in this direction, where the exciting problem is now to differentiate uh, over over factor graphs, and this is something that we we, we add in a, in a in this LP sparse map paper. So we can still have the factor graph with your constraints, mm -hmm. uh, but now you have two problems. You need to do inference in this factor graph, and this problem was kind of solved, uh, you know, in in the work that that we that I did in my thesis. But then you also have the problem of differentiating it. Uh, and this is something that we are looking at more recently. Um, but so you asked about discrete geometry. Um, so when, when another place where, where um, we are looking now at discrete geometry and, and this kind of marginal polytopes uh, is for this more recent work on, on uh, sparse communication. Mm -hmm. um, where, uh, so, you know, the, the, this polytope, you know, each vertex represents a structure. Uh, and if you have, if, and, and, you know, and the point in, inside the polytope is a, is a distribution over structures. But if you want to have like a, a sparse distribution over structures, for example, let's suppose that the structures are parse trees. If you want to represent a, a distribution where most of the parse, the parse trees have probability zero, and only a small number of parse trees have non-zero probability, then this is also a point in the marginal polytope, but it's going to be like a, a face of the polytope, you know, uh, which could be a vertex, it could be a line or, a, a, you know, a, a triangle, whatever you want, depending on how many structures are, have non-zero probability. And this is something that we are looking now. Um, uh, we are looking at this lattice structure of the polytope. You know, any polytope can be uh, represented as a lattice. You know, this, this combinatorial structure of polytopes is a lattice. And we are looking at this kind of combinatorial, combinatorial objects, mm -hmm. um, in you know recently in in a, in a in a in some work that we are doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed going back and reading your thesis because um, yeah, I'm personally familiar with you know a lot of your recent work, and so it was cool to see these ideas coming up. Uh, like I remember seeing a talk. It was about the LP LP sparse map. And um, there, it was almost like a, a similar image that was in the thesis of this polytope. And then, you know, each uh, vertex is going to be a structure. And then in the sparse communication work, yeah, I found this to be really nice as well. So I guess like the key idea there is that 
you have you could think about discrete variables and then continuous variables and so the 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 interior of this uh, polytope will be a continuous distribution and then the face would be a sparse distribution yeah exactly so you know the I mean, the motivation for for looking into these sort of problems is is a is a, an observation that uh, I've, I've been thinking about recently, which is you know, in, if you want to have AI systems interacting with humans, you need to have some kind of common language between the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if you're using neural networks as the uh, model of choice for your AI system, uh, these things speaks speak they speak different languages, right? Uh, so. Um, you know, AI systems, they learn continuous representations and they propagate these representations from layer to layer. Mm-hmm. So their language is something continuous, let's say. And humans, on the other hand, they, they speak a, a language that is discrete, symbolic, compositional, and so on. Um, and, uh, this, and this distinction between discrete and continuous variables is, you know, uh, is very fundamental and, and it's also very prevalent in statistics. If you are modeling some problem, you need to choose if you are going to use a discrete random variable or a continuous random variable. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of unification in the way you compute expectations and so on. But uh, at the end of the day, their nature is very different. Um, and even in information theory, you know, if you look at Shannon's book on uh, the mathematical theory of communication, you see separate chapters for discrete and continuous uh, continuous signals. Um, and, uh, and, and the default way of... Uh, doing digital, digital communication with a continuous signal is to do some sort of quantization to convert it to discrete, discrete signal and then uh, transmit the discrete signal. But I was thinking about what else can we do? Do we really need this division between discrete and concrete? Um, and uh, the main realization is that, uh, you know, once again, sparsity can offer an answer to this question. Um, so, uh, you know, w- w- I can talk a little bit later if, if you want about about sparse max and other things that we did more recently. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we have been working with this sort of transformations that are a little bit between continuous and discrete, and they kind of offer a good solution to this problem. Um, and and sparse max is not the only example. You know, if, if you look at activations like rectified linear units, for example, they are also sparse. Uh, so they have the capability of turning off some neurons completely in your neural network and gen- generate some kind of sparse circuits. Uh, in the neural network. So the the, the key idea of, of this uh, sparse communication is imagine that you want to apply uh, you know something like sparse max over symbols in an alphabet. Um, and so without getting into a lot of details, sparse, sparse max is a way of doing a transformation that can return a very sparse probability vector. So if you have a large alphabet, sparse max will give you zero probability to a lot of symbols in your alphabet and only a few non-zero probabilities to a few symbols. Um, so it gives you a kind of a sparse combination of symbols. It still continues because, you know, the, 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 the symbols that are, that get non-zero probabilities, you know, the, it's, it's a real number that is assigned to them, but it's kind of low dimensional continuous. Um, and so if you think about the sparse distribution over symbols like this, uh, we can call it, we call it a mixed symbol. Um, in this work. So we can regard it as some some sort of interference of several symbols, hopefully just a few. Um, and in the extreme case, we could have a one-hot distribution where there is only a single symbol that, uh, you know, and this becomes a one-hot factor. Um, 
and so the idea here is okay what 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 if we just uh, you know transmit these mixed symbols as opposed to having to transmit discrete ones so these mixed symbols are a hybrid of discrete and continuous you need to have a theory for that but if you look at the, the you know the, the you know the, the, the classic concepts of uh, entropy uh, kullback labor divergence and so on uh, they are typically used uh, either with a, a measure that works with discrete objects, the counting measure, which is basically the, just doing uh, sums, summations. Or if you are in the continuous world, then uh, you, you do integrals and we use the Lebesgue measure. But if you are somewhere in between, so if you are in one of these phases of our polytope, of our marginal polytope, then these measures don't work because they have zero measure. Uh, so we cannot treat them as continuous random variables. We need something a little bit different. Uh, otherwise, our entropies are going to be meaningless. And so what we what we did in this work was to try to formalize these things theoretically. Um, and with this theory, you can answer questions like, uh, you know, if you want to transmit a mixed symbol, what is the smallest number of bits necessary to transmit this symbol? Where we want 100% accuracy to transmit the low dimensional space where the symbol lives. So basically, the the different symbols that are interfering each other, uh, and we and we have some predefined bit precision to transmit the probabilities assigned to each bit. Uh, so this is really something in the middle of uh, uh, you know uh, discrete and continuous. Um, and and we do other things. We also have like a stochastic uh, uh, stochastic version of sparse marks. I can I can talk a little bit more about that later if that comes up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I did. I did really like reading through this. It was. Um, it felt like really foundational kind of work. Like you mentioned, it was going down and defining the measure. You know, going all, all the way down to the measure theory, and then uh, defining the entropy, the Kale divergence for these things. And then, if we were to zoom out, then now that you have these different uh, things defined for these mixed random variables. From like a practitioner's or user's perspective, what might the future look like? Would this translate to maybe like a new layer that someone would incorporate into their neural network? Or are you kind of still figuring out uh, that part of it? Yeah, I mean, we, we are still figuring figuring out what we can do with this. But, you know, one... I, I think it can be very useful, for example, as a latent, uh, you know, to use this sort of uh, mixed variables as latent variables in your model, in a VAE, for example. Um, and uh, and the reason why I think this is exciting is because you can kind of induce, uh, you know, something that is not really like a discrete language, mm. uh, but something that is almost a discrete language uh, or something that maybe... Uh, upon convergence will be very, very close uh, to, to discrete. But you can still, you don't have all these problems that you usually have with discrete latent variables, like uh, things not being differentiable, having to use reinforce, uh, you know, reinforce uh, uh, score function estimation, uh, estimation and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so this could be a good alternative to that. And um, yeah, so I one, one big inspiration for this was also working work you know recent works on things like emergent communication mm. um and uh, and and even uh, you know works related to explainability uh using things like rationalizers and so on so i i think that this could be like a, a this could this could give some interesting mathematical perspective on uh how we can make a system in, uh, interpretable or expandable if, if it's able to select things uh or to compose things 
that are discrete, maybe this kind of uh, uh, objects can be perceived by humans. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, let's definitely make sure to save time to talk more about the sparsity because there was a, a, a section in thesis on structured sparsity. Maybe before that, we could like loop back to the earlier parts of the thesis. And I wanted to ask about this 83 algorithm because I think this is also appeared, you know, either loosely or directly in your later work. So could you talk through just this idea of developing um, this 83 inference algorithm based on dual decomposition? Kind of what was the, um, what like need came up to develop this algorithm? And then maybe what were some of the interesting key ideas? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is a funny story, like, uh, and and something that uh, you know, if you read the thesis, it's you don't see the information there. Um, but the backstory was interesting. So uh, you know, after starting to do things in constrained graphical models and message passing and so on, I thought that okay, now that we have a formalism for graphical models that can incorporate these art constraints, we can just use our favorite message passing algorithms, and things are going to work. Uh, so I, I had very high expectations about that, and. Uh, I spent a long time playing around with all sorts of message passing algorithms, you know, things like tree reweighted belief propagation and so on. You know, there was, there's a book by Martin Wainwright and Michael Jordan that covers all these topics in big detail. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the problem is that this was really not working, you know. So if you have art constraints or, or big loops, big cycles um, in, your, in your graphical model, uh, you know, uh, these belief propagation algorithms either... Uh, either don't converge, or if 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 you use like three reweighted versions of them, they give very poor approximations. So I realized that the main problem is that approximate marginal inference is much harder than an approximate maximization. So you know if you are doing uh, approximate marginal inference, for example, with belief propagation, with some product belief propagation in a loopy graph, then implicitly you are doing some kind of uh, entropy approximation. And these entropy approximations are, are very tricky to, to get if you have uh, art constraints. So I was very unsuccessful in that, uh, in that problem. So I, I also tried max product versions of BP uh, that don't have the entropy term, but this was not working well either. And when I was in the middle of this process, uh, there was a, a concurrent work that came out by, by Sasha Rush, which was uh, then a PhD student with Michael Collins. Mm. Uh, that proposed dual decomposition for parsing, and you know, and and they really nailed the problem. You know, they didn't do message uh, message passing algorithms; they just did a different technique called dual decomposition. Uh, you know, that was ve very simple and and very effective for the problems that they were tackling. Uh, so the difference with message passing and dual decomposition is that in dual decomposition, you take the original linear program, uh, the, the linear optimization problem that. That, that defines the structure prediction problem that you care about, uh, where you know the constraints might may correspond to several factors, um, and and you you take the dual the Lagrange dual of this problem, and you 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 optimize the dual with a subgradient algorithm, uh, and uh, you know if you skip all the mathematical derivation, the entire thing that you get in the end it all boils down to solving uh, local maximization problems at each factor. Uh, and you know, looking at these agreements of uh, overlapping variables among the factors, and then adjusting some Lagrange variables that try to correct these disagreements. So these Lagrange variables are very similar to messages in message passing. So formally, the algorithm is not so different from message passing, but it's uh, it ended up to be a lot more stable. 
Um, so this, you can regard this as some kind of a consensus algorithm. Um, and so, I, you know, uh, this was basically scooping the work that, that I was doing, but I, I decided to apply this technique uh, to the higher order dependency parsing uh, uh, models that, that we were developing, uh, where we have like a many small constraints and many factors, but it didn't work so well. And uh, the problem is that the subgradient algorithm can be very slow. So if you use this dual decomposition technique with the subgradient algorithm, you might you will need a lot of iterations. Uh, and unless you wait enough time, then your approximations are not going to be great. Um, so what's the next thing that I that that I thought was okay? Maybe there is a better optimization algorithm instead of subgradient. So let me look at the optimization literature. Um, and and then I discovered something called augmented Lagrangians, uh, you know, which were very old in optimization. Uh, and the idea of augmented Lagrangians is to augment the Lagrangian function, the Lagrangian dual with a quadratic penalty uh, on the constraints. Uh, so this is kind of a quadratic regularization of your Lagrangian. And I, I you know, I immediately thought that, uh, you know, this can be put together with the dual decomposition algorithm uh, proposed by, uh, or, or used by, by, by Sasha Rush and, and Michael Collins. And, um, and this quadratic regularization might just speed up convergence because it's kind of, it's, it's, it's more aggressively trying to push for a consensus. Um, but it's not like a, a, an augmented Lagrangian method directly. You need to do some kind of alternate updates. And so when I talked to, to Mario, uh, you know, one of my advisors about this problem, so Mario is the advisor that really knows about optimization and so on. Um, uh, he told me that, oh, you know, he just rediscovered something called ADMM. ADMM stands for alternating direction method of multipliers. It was exactly what, what uh, I was trying to do with the uh, uh, you know, alternating the, the updates with augmented Lagrangians, um, and and uh, you know, ADMM, even though it's a, it's also an old optimization technique, it was popularized you know very very recently at the time for other problems, um, including problems that that uh, that Mario was working on. So and this turned out to be a very fruitful direction. Uh, you know, so algorithmically you get something that is very similar to the subgradient version of dual decomposition except that instead of having to solve local linear problems at each factor, you now need to solve some local quadratic problems at each factor. Uh, and factors here could be logic, you know, the logic factors, art constraint factors, you know, the things that I was talking about in the beginning. Um, but um, but for, for the, uh, so the, good, the, the quadratic problems are a little bit more complicated than, uh, than the other, than just maximizing an, uh, uh, the variable assignment in a, in a factor. But for the constraints that we were interested in at the time, you know, logic constraints, budget constraints, and so on, uh, this can actually be done exactly and very efficiently. Uh, these are basically small projections uh, that can be computed in linear time. And later we also came up with the general active set algorithm, which is a, a variant of the Frank Wolf algorithm that could tackle any structured factor. And so, you know, by putting all these ingredients together, we got a, kind of a, a better dual decomposition algorithm. Um, and and this is this is what was implemented in in AD cubed. So it's uh, we write it AD three. I usually spell it AD cubed. Oh yeah. Uh, it stands for alternating directions dual decomposition. Um, and um, and yeah. So I, I I wrote some some C plus plus code for that. You know when uh, when I did that work, I I didn't expect other people to use it, but it it got picked up by 
some people that were working in scikit-learn, mm -hmm. um, including Vlad Nikolai, who, who started collaborating to me much later. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it was like a, a very decent, uh, you know, inference algorithm for general graphical models. So it got included in some uh, scikit-learn package that they were developing for structure prediction. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, after the thesis, we kept using it for several NLP problems, like... Uh, Besides uh, syntactic parsing, also you know semantic semantic role labeling, summarization, reference resolution, and so on. Um, and and it interestingly came out again uh, in this work that uh, that we that we had more recent with sparse map and LP sparse map. Uh -huh. Yeah, that that's fascinating. So, well, yeah. First, um, I guess we'll have to get Sasha Rush on the podcast to talk about more about the dual decomposition. Um, Absolutely. But, <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about like if if we think about nowadays um, inference methods. So you could view kind of the inference method for the output of a neural network, like you know beam search. Do you foresee those becoming more kind of sophisticated? That we should put more thought into how we're decoding from language models, or like you'd mentioned before, maybe some of these ideas actually carry over better when we start thinking about latent variables. Yeah, just kind of a general question of like how how these different ideas, um, how you saw them kind of propagate to today and potentially even to the future. Yeah, this is this is a great question. So I think the big difference between the time where we are doing this work for our thesis and now is that at the time, uh, you know, looking at structure in the output or modeling structure in the output, uh, really worked. You know, we could get uh, much higher accuracies by by keep pushing for higher order uh, structures over and over. But now it's very different. And I think the fundamental thing that uh, made, made a difference here is that now you have much more powerful encoders. So we can model our input structure much better than what we did with feature engineering at the time, because you have powerful neural networks that learn very complex representations and, you know, and powerful representations. And the fact that we capture input structure so well makes it less important to enforce uh, output structure. Because in many cases, uh, even if you don't explicitly put the constraint there, uh, you know, if you have enough data and, and if you have a strong encoder, then uh, your model learns to uh, respect those constraints. Uh, so most of the time, there's not much to gain. I mean, th there was, we have the recent paper on parsing uh, last year where we observed some small gains by using higher order parse, uh, factors for parsing. So you, you still have something to gain there, but the difference is you know, uh, fairly small and uh, it's much more expensive uh, to use uh, higher order decoding. So I, I don't think that it's a very promising direction at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm not talking about generation, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a different story, right. but more about um, other, other kind of structure prediction problems. Where I see a lot of problem, uh, progress, uh, promise, is really on uh, uh, structured latent variables, as you were saying. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting things that we can do there, you know, by imposing our uh, structured knowledge, knowledge about the problem as a form of inductive bias. Uh, it's challenging to make it work. I would say that I, I was, you know, not super convinced by any uh, work I saw so far that tries to use uh, structured latent variables, not even on our own. I mean, it's it's an interesting framework and you might get some gains sometimes, but it's not something that is disruptive yet. 
but uh, I think it can be an interesting path for the future. You know, in particular, if you start using more sophisticated uh, 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 structured latent variables, and I think that LP sparse map could be a good uh, way of doing that. You know, we could use it to, for example, uh, generate a, a structured explanation for a, a, a downstream uh, a decision, a prediction for a downstream task, or something like that. And then you could try to interpret what that structure means, or you can even do some kind of semi-supervision to try to uh, nudge these structures in the right direction. Um, so I, I think that that can be that can be fruitful. Uh, so I, I was excluding generation from this analysis because I think this is a, a very different space, you know, uh, mm. as it is being tackled right now. Uh, so you know, sequence-to-sequence models um, with with beam search and so on, you know, they they are very hard to beat. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think they are going to be the last answer. Uh, so um, uh, they, you know, they they still have the same problems of error propagation, even though you can mitigate that a little bit uh, if you if you use a beam. And it's very often the case that the things that you are that you are uh, learning, uh, that you are optimizing during learning, like like perplexity, likelihood, and so on. Uh, are not exactly what beam search is doing. You know, there is there, there is there are these works that show that uh, if you if you did the uh, uh, exact optimization at test time instead of beam search, or if you increase the size of your beam, uh, the performance is going to degrade because beam search tends to give you uh, you know things that are shorter than they should. Mm -hmm. There is this very nice paper on a uh, um, uh, cat got your tongue problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, that that talks about this, um, and we we kind of investigated that as well with the with with sparse uh, decoding um, frameworks that kind of alleviate it. Um, so I think that there's a lot of things to be done. I don't know what's going to be the answer to that, but I think there's a lot of interesting things to be done in generation that go beyond left to right uh, generation. Uh, so I think that uh, I'm very excited to see what's going to come out of energy-based models. Uh, I, I think that. Uh, it might be possible to use, uh, you know, objectives that are not uh, these uh, autoregressive left-right objectives that allow you, to, for example, to do text infilling or to, uh, you know, uh, if you, if for example, if you are trying to generate a story and you know the beginning of the story and the ending of the story, can you generate the part in the middle? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, you know, so far it's. Uh, the, the computational burden is probably too big, uh, but it's maybe it's a matter of waiting to see what can come out of this research. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, all all of those are really interesting questions. So yeah, maybe we could move then to the um, just the discussion of sparsity. So in the PhD thesis, you have the section on structured sparsity, uh, and then as we've mentioned already in this interview. Um, this idea of sparsity is something that's come up in your later work and in your current work. So how are you using sparsity uh, in the thesis and kind of how did you initially get interested in this? Yeah, so I, I think sparsity is something very fundamental in machine learning. Um, so that you know, there's, there's too, way too much information available in the world of which only a tiny fraction is going to be relevant for whatever task you want to perform, um, and uh, you know this 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 uh, connects with the with the principle of parsimony or Occam's razor, mm -hmm. uh, articulated by William of Occam uh, in the Middle Age. Um, actually, it goes back even further to ancient Greece, that advocates that you know if you have several competing hypotheses, 
to explain a phenomena, you should select the solution that uh, makes the fewest assumptions. Uh, so I think this was formulated as uh, entities should not be multiplied without necessity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in machine learning, motivation to follow this principle is to lead to better generalization. Uh, if you have like a simpler uh, uh, model, it's less prone to overfit, for example. Um, in NLP, uh, I, you know, this can also be very practical, not only because it might generalize better. Uh, so, and, you know, Take this with a grain of salt because there is a lot of recent new results on generalization that defy any, uh, you know, classical theory. Uh, but uh, but in NLP, this can also be practical because it can lead to smaller and more efficient models. And I think this is a very important area of research that uh, it's going to become more and more important. You know, how can we build models that are more compact, more energy efficient, and so on? Mm. Um, and so one one of the big pains. And so contextualizing a little bit to why I was interested in sparsity in my thesis, one of the big pains in developing NLP models that I mentioned earlier um, was feature engineering. You know, this is something that we don't need to concern so much now because you know deep learning replaces that with representation learning. But feature engineering was a very annoying thing in the past. And uh, many useful features in NLP were based on categorical features, binary features, things like uh, words, part of speech tags, is this word capitalized? You know things like that, uh, and models tend to be more and more accurate when we start combining some of these features. You know by doing conjunctions of features, but this process, this procedure is unbounded, right? You can keep combining features over and over, and you never know how to stop. And your model gets bigger and bigger, and eventually it will overfit, or or you know it's 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 a, it doesn't fit memory anymore. Um, so this is not a very guided principle, um, and. Um, so it's good to be able to have a way of selecting only the features that are relevant for some notion of relevance. Um, and of course, this was not new. You know, there, there was a lot of work in feature selection in machine learning and NLP much before, you know, long before I was working in my thesis. Uh, most of the work was focusing uh, on selecting individual features. Uh, but in NLP, the classical way of devising features was by using feature templates. So you have the template like I, I want the noun in the current position plus the part of speech tag in the previous position, for example. And then you have another template where you use like three consecutive part of speech tags, you know, in, in the two previous positions and things like that. Uh, and so the kind of feature selection that was uh, more useful in NLP would be to select an entire feature template. If you don't want to use that template, we just, you know, ignore any feature or you don't even instantiate any feature that follows that template. So I, I attacked the problem of selecting feature templates uh, with regularizers that encourage structured sparsity, you know, things like group lasso and so on. Um, yeah, so th- those are, were the main motivations at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so here it was more looking at modifying the learning procedure versus the inference procedure, right? That was also like another general uh, shift and at least the, the way the thesis was structured. Yeah, and 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 this this changed recently, you know, and uh, this is uh, uh, this is what led us to to think about sparse max. So, mm. uh, so it, the, when we proposed this was uh, I think in in twenty sixteen. Uh, so you know this was you know by that time NLP has been caught by by deep learning. So you know uh, all models started to use deep learning, and you know feature engineering was not exciting anymore. Uh, but it was still a transition, and I was still trying to, you know, uh, uh, get up with the literature to understand what was going on. Um, and um, 
and so at that time, I was really uh, interested in attention mechanisms, which I think was one of the you know uh, most important advances that that has been made at that time. Um, you know, it had a, a really strong impact in machine translation in many other tasks. It's kind of the building block of transformers and so on. So I, I really liked the idea of uh, attention mechanisms, and I, I, I thought that you know this might connect to a lot of things that I, I've done in my thesis. So let me just try to reuse uh, you know uh, uh, as as much as we can to try to think in this new scenario and see what makes sense. And to me, attention mechanisms are really a way of doing feature selection, but dynamically. Um, so as you said, like instead of learning during inference, so uh, you are given an input and you need to make a prediction. And you want to select the relevant part of the inputs that's going to help you with that prediction. Uh, and you just want to ignore the rest. Mm. Uh, so to me, we really transition from static to dynamic feature selection. Uh, and I think this connects a little bit with the uh, model interpretability, if you want, where you kind of look at the, all the weights in your linear model uh, assigned to each feature and you contemplate the entire model. Uh, this is what happens in static feature selection. You know, if, if weights are zero, this means that your feature is removed. We transition from that to prediction explainability, where uh, models are attending to something to make predictions. And if you look at where they are attending, maybe you can understand better why they, they predict what they do. Um, and so I, I asked the question, uh, OK, can, can the same sparse modeling ideas uh, like uh, L1 regularization and, and other things of the kind be useful here in attention? Um, so of course, there are some differences. Uh, and uh, you know the the the, attention, the default choice for attention mechanisms were to compute attention probabilities with softmax. And softmax never gives you a zero probability because you, know, you exponentiate your scores and you normalize them. And the exponential function is strictly positive. Um, so uh, this inspired me to, to think of sparse max, um, which, is a, which is an Euclidean projection onto the uh, probability simplex. So instead of exponentiating your, your scores and, and, and uh, normalizing, what we do now is you project your score vector uh, directly to the, uh, onto the probability simplex. And as a result, you are going to have a valid probability distribution over your, your words. Um, but these including projections have a propensity to be sparse. Uh, you know, uh, intuitively, as, you, as, as the point that you are projecting moves further and further away, it becomes more and more likely that we're going to hit a corner or, or uh, you know, uh, an edge of the simplex. And, uh, and these uh, points correspond to, uh, to vectors that are sparse, vectors that assign zero probability to some words. And zero probability here means that, OK, the model is saying that this word is irrelevant. I'm going to ignore it and not propagate information further in my neural network. Mm -hmm. um, of course, softmax can do that a little bit in the limit because it can assign arbitrarily small probability to events. But it doesn't have this capability of selecting them exactly. So I think this is the crucial distinction between sparse max and, and softmax. Of course, uh, you know this was more like a, a thought experiment. You know, when I when we first thought about that, it, it was not obvious that uh, we could uh, use this to build attention mechanisms that we could differentiate over sparse max and so on. But uh, this this was the time where I remember the work that uh, was done years ago in the thesis and uh, made a connection with AD cubed and with some of the logic factors that we had at the time that were solving problems that were very similar to the optimization problem underlying sparse max. Hmm. And so we could reuse kind of the similar uh, strategies. And you know it turns out that we can do uh, the sparse max computation in linear time, uh, which is asymptotically the same as softmax. 
and uh, and you know with some pencil and paper we realize that we can we can also compute gradients and gradients are actually sparse so they can even be uh, you know uh, cheaper than the gradients of softmax um, so that's 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 how it came out we we, we plugged these in, in attention mechanisms we experimented with first with natural language inference um, you know to obtain a mix of hard and soft alignments um, then, then we we also later in, in worked with uh, with Vlad Nikolai, with with uh, with Mathieu Bondel, and with my student Ben Peters. We discovered that uh, softmax and sparsemax are both instances of regularized argmax problems, um, and that we can actually interpolate between these two. Uh, so there is an entire family of transformations that contains both softmax and argmax. Uh, sorry, both softmax and sparsemax. Mm -hmm. They actually contain argmax as well. Um, and this this led to something that we call now Antmax, which builds again on this old idea of Tzali's entropies <laughs> that uh, was you know the first project I worked on in my PhD. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a, yet another opportunity of bringing that um, to the table. Um, and that's it. So we we use that for um, to to develop sparse sequence to sequence models. We, we first use it as attention, but we also use it as a loss function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the philosophy of the thesis review. Uh, there's probably multiple philosophies of the thesis review, but yeah, one is that like this idea that um, problems that you work on early on can come back in unexpected ways, and this this seems like a good example of that with sparse max. It was kind of loosely inspired by the structured sparsity work, and then you said you even used some of the optimization method, like insights that you'd got from 80 cubed uh, for developing it. So it's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, so then on, on the topic of the um, of how you used it later, uh, for instance, like one of my favorite papers was uh, applying this for text generation. So I think a lot of people might um, be familiar with, you know, like the GPT-3 API where you can choose the sampling method. So you can choose, you know, top P sampling or top K sampling. And this is another area where the sparsity comes into play, where instead of just zeroing out everything that's not in the top K, you can actually have the model learn which elements to zero out. Uh, and that's exactly what sparsity is, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, so uh, you know, w w uh, when we when we thought about sparse max, we thought about attention mechanisms, but we also thought about if you really want to generalize softmax, you also need to uh, find a way of uh, using it uh, in the output layer, you know, to, to to derive a loss function out of it, the same way that people use the cross entropy loss, um, you know, associated with with sparse with softmax. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, with with sparse max, this is tricky because if you if you take the log probability uh, as your loss function, if your probability is zero, then your entire objective function can become minus infinity, and you are not going to learn anything. So we were looking at what is the right, the most natural way of formalizing a loss function uh, out of of sparse max, um, and uh, and this is uh, you know we later found found, uh, found the answer to this question with something called Fenchel Young losses. Um, you know, we have we have a JMLR paper that describes all, all the mathematical setup you know, that we did with with Vlad and, and with Mathieu Bundel. Um, so, facial and losses are kind of a class of loss functions that have very cool properties. For example, they are they are convex, they are differentiable, they have mar they they can have margins. You, you know, if you if you use the 
entropy regularizers that we are using with sparse mass and antmax. Um, so these margins is an interesting property. You know, this is similar to the hinge loss of SVMs, um, but it's kind of a little bit of a different uh, margin. And so this means that if the model has a large enough score for the true label, uh, it's going to incur a loss of zero. Uh, of course, you never get that with cross entropy, right? Because you know you can you can have a very small loss, but it's never going to be zero because sparse max is never going to give you uh, one hundred percent probability to the to the true label. Um, and so we use these losses um, to to obtain uh, you know sparse sequence to sequence models, where as you were saying, at each step of generation. Uh, instead of uh, assigning probability to all the words in the vocabulary, there's only a small number of words with non-zero probability. And the number of those words varies, right? It's not it's not a top K. You, you don't fix the number of words that get non-zero probability. It comes out directly from the model. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we, we, we did this with words, with characters. We did it for morphological inflection, uh, for grapheme to phoneme tasks. For, we did it for machine translation with words. And the next thing that we looked at was, uh, you know, we realized that for uh, language modeling, uh, people tend to to sample uh, stochastically with either with top K and later with nucleus sampling. Mm -hmm. And uh, top K and nucleus sampling are both truncation strategies. So you start by training a model with cross entropy, uh, but then you don't really want this dense probability vector. You just you are just interested in uh, a small number of words. So you just truncate them, uh, you know, at, at runtime to do what you want. Because if you just generate by sampling from softmax, you're going to generate a lot of rare words, uh, and you get a very bad text in the end. Um, and so what we realized at the time was, okay, but Antmax is already learning this. So maybe we can just use, you can just learn a model with the Antmax loss, um, and then apply it directly at test time without any truncation uh, beyond that. Um, and he did that, and uh, and uh, you know it's 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 hard to tell how much better it is than previous methods because you know there's no good uh, evaluation uh, of uh, of of uh, generated text. We did some uh, human studies that suggested that this was better than nucleus sampling and 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 better than top K. Um, but uh, I think it has a lot of interesting properties and. Uh, it's a. Uh, it I find it's uh, something that is very natural, right? So you, when when the model is considering which word to generate, uh, it kind of makes sense to concentrate the probability mass only on a small number of words and to let these uh, number of words vary. And this is something that the model is, can can learn uh, when it's trying to optimize a loss function on on the existing uh, sentences. Right. Yeah. We we also observed. Um, so recently we had a paper at Knuckle this year. Uh, where you know we we went back to to facial end losses, which generalize the Antmax loss, um, and we tried to uh, equip it also with the other things that people use for softmax, like label smoothing and so on. And what we realized uh, is that you know going back to that problem of uh, the cat's got your tank problem, you know this tendency of models trained with cross entropy and decoded with beam search. To generate, uh, uh, you know, to to prefer the empty string. Well, the empty string not if you do beam search, but if you do, if you did exact search, the empty string gets a high probability. Uh, we noticed that uh, if you use the Antmax loss, you don't get that problem at the same to the same extent. I mean, you still get uh, some bias that favors short sequences, but uh, you know it's much better than what we get with softmax. And if you like in softmax, you need the, you know tricks to avoid this, like a label smoothing or you know uh, 
um, things like that. And uh, we came up with a way of also having some kind of label smoothing with functional and losses and applying it to Entmax. And one thing that we discovered in this process is that um, models that generate with, with Entmax, they tend to be better calibrated. If you look at the probability values mm. that they are assigning to the words that get non-zero probability, um, you know, uh, using uh, uh, expected calibration error and the kind of metrics that people use to uh, to measure uh, how calibrated models are, we found you found uh, uh, that they, they tend to be better calibrated as models with softmax. So I think that there might be some uh, interesting thing going on there. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, that is really interesting. And yeah, I'll be sure to link to these different papers in the show notes. So then potentially GPT-4 should be trained with Entmax. Well, I, 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 so I don't have the, 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 the scale to try to do it myself in, my, in our group, but uh, I, will, I will be super excited to see what happens if you train things large scale yeah, yeah. Uh, with Entmax. Uh, I'm very curious to, to see what would happen. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, I think we would need several hours to, um, to go into, into everything. This has been really fascinating so far. Maybe just to throw in a question about um, just like the career path, the different decisions you made after the PhD. Um, so yeah, when you graduated and then up until now, what were some of the major steps you took and what is uh, the lab that you're leading now kind of uh, look like? Yeah, so so after finishing my PhD, I came back to the company I was before uh, I started the PhD, where I was I started working as a software engineer in, in NLP, uh, and I, I came back to that company and started a research lab there uh, called Preburn Labs. So Preburn is the name of the company. Uh, this was an SME in, in Lisbon. Um, I always kept a connection with the University of Lisbon and with CMU. Uh, so in particular in this CMU Portugal program. I, I co-supervised the PhD student in the same dual degree program that I was enrolled in, and I still keep that connection now. Um, and at this time, you know, towards the end of my PhD, it was also when we started the Lisbon Machine Learning School, LXMLS, which is a summer school that we organize every year in Lisbon uh, and attracts centers of students every year to learn about machine learning and NLP. Uh, we are still doing it. You know, the last two years have been remote because of COVID, but we expect next year to be back to a presential event. Um, and so a couple of years later, in, in 20, uh, 2015, um, I joined Unbevel. Uh, so Unbevel is a startup that uh, mixes machine translation with human post-editing. Uh, and I joined to start a research lab there. So I, I joined as the head of research. Um, so I, I knew I knew the founders of Unbevel very well. You know, the, the CEO of Unbevel, uh, Vasco Pedro, was a colleague at CMU. He was also a student in the LTI. We actually shared offices there. Um, and uh, and the, the CTO and co-founder, João Graça, uh, was a PhD student at the same time as me with Ben Tascar uh, at UPenn. Uh, and so, you know, I was very, very fond of the, 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 the technology that Unbevel was developing. And this was very exciting because it happened right after the, the, the big boom of neural machine translation. So I, I never worked in machine translation in my thesis. So I skipped, uh, you know, the statistical machine translation parts uh, with Moses and so on. And I started to, to work uh, on, on neural MT at Unbevel. And the first project that I developed at Unbevel was actually SparseMax. So, you know, the paper up and, um, you know, uh, we wrote it. Um, it was the first project when, when I joined there. And so currently, I, you know, we, we are doing a lot of work in translation quality estimation, 
uh, empty evaluation. So I'm getting more and more interested on estimating the confidence of systems uh, and quality estimation is a part, part of that problem. Um, and uh, so I, I currently split my time with, uh, with Unbevel uh, and at IST, the University of Lisbon, where I'm also an associate professor. And I'm also part of the Lisbon ELIS unit, which is kind of a, ELIS is like a, a big network, a big machine learning network in Europe. And uh, we have a unit in Lisbon uh, that I'm part of. Um, and so at, at Unbevel, I'm leading an amazing research team that works on all these topics that I mentioned, quality estimation, MT evaluation, multilingual MT, and so on. Uh, at IST, I have you know, an amazing group of students working in the DeepSpin project. Uh, DeepSpin is a, is a grant funded by uh, the European Research Council. Um, and, uh, you know, there are several students doing, you know, research, uh, the, the research that I described here was, was done in the scope of that project, the recent research that we are doing. Uh, I'm, I'm also working with the Maya project, which is a, a large scale initiative of the CMU Portugal program that Unbevel is leading. And this is a nice way to collaborate with the, with the LTI. So I, I want to keep that conversation going for as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's your, your current lab. I guess, like, since we're getting low on time, maybe we could move to the last two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. Um, so the first is, uh, if you could think back to during your PhD, if you could describe your um, different research activity, different interests as being guided by an objective function, uh, what would that objective function have been? And do you think that it's different nowadays? So that's an interesting question. Um, so to be honest, I, I never thought too much about that uh, while I was working in, in my PhD. I, I, I was not thinking much very long term. I was just enjoying the work that I was doing. So my, my main goal was just to learn as much as possible and to work on problems that I found exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have a lot of research freedom uh, in my PhD and a lot of smart people around me that I could consult with. Uh, you know, I, I also love to travel and attending conferences and hanging out with other researchers. So I think I had a lot of small local objective functions, but there was not, there was, you know, maybe the global optimization function is really, you know, no more about fuel formalizing things a little bit better, theorizing uh, some of the things that I was observing and so on. And then nowadays, do you think you kind of keep the same, um, you know, multiple local object objective functions? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the, you know the global objective is the same that that I had in my PhD, trying to uh, systematize things and, and formalize things um, a little bit more, and take inspirations of things that that uh, that are working, um, and connect the dots. I, I, I like to uh, unify different lines of work, mm. um, and the local functions are you know not very different i think the in terms of of research they they are quite similar to the ones that uh, that i had i mean I, if there is a new problem you know if i have time <laughs> i think the, the only thing that really changed from the uh, the time i was a phd student to now is that time became a lot more fragmented um so we, you know it, there's a big difference between working on a on a single problem or a couple of problems when you are a phd student mm -hmm. to having a large group of students or researchers in your lab and having to switch on and off between the different problems. Um, so that changed things a little bit. But apart from that, I think the fundamentals are still the same. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the last question is, 
if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it could be just a useful heuristic, or it could be some all-encompassing grand advice or something in the middle. Um, it's one of the hardest questions on the show. One piece of advice for a new researcher. One, just one. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can collapse everything to one, but I, I think that uh, you know one thing that um, I felt was very good for me when I was doing the PhD is to uh, take the chance in the beginning to uh, explore different things before settling on a project. Mm. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, this is not possible everywhere because, you know, in some places, your PhD lasts three years, so there's not a lot of time for exploration. But I, I, I really think that, you know, if you have the opportunity of uh, uh, trying out different projects, you know, trying to collaborate with your PhD mates whenever possible, um, it's, it's much funnier to, to work with other people than just working by yourself. And you can learn a lot by interacting with other people in your group. Um, and, you know, other than that, I think that's, you know, a lot of the ideas that I worked on, they didn't work. Um, but uh, it's good if uh, you, you don't quit at the first attempt. I think if, if you have a solid idea and you really believe in it, uh, and if it doesn't work the first time we implement it, you know, keep insisting. It, you know, this, this is something that happens all the time. Sometimes it doesn't work and it's fine. You know, you just uh, put that topic aside and start working on something else. Uh, it's still valuable. You still learn during that process. You can, you know, some of these in the in the in the in the sequence of today's conversation. Uh, one thing that stood out is that you know some very old ideas that I thought were uh, you know finished right after we mm. finished that project, they end up coming up later. And I think this is something that uh, as your research life gets bigger, gets longer and longer, it's it's uh, you'll see it happen more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, you know, make sure to to attend conferences and talk to people whose papers we are reading. I, I think these times with the pandemics, uh, many uh, new researchers don't have the chance of attending conferences, and and you know things might change, the way conferences are organized might might change in the future. But I think it's really important this serendipity of uh, you know finding someone in the corridor, starting a conversation, not just reading a paper, but talking to the people who wrote the paper. You know, those things can be uh, very very helpful and very insightful. Well, yeah. On that note. I, I really enjoyed reading through your thesis and and um, I, I've been a big fan of your other work for a while and getting to talk about it with you today was amazing. Hearing some of the backstory, hearing the connections like you were mentioning uh, that kind of span multiple years. And so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the thesis review. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, you know, I really love the podcast, and you know, some of the theses that I was mentioning here, I I saw the podcasts where you interviewed them, and uh, you know, they were also excellent pieces. Uh, and I think it's very inspirational for for people to listen to to these backstories. Thanks.